Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since the early days of the public internet, Big Think has curated more than 10,000 surprising, brain-bending, significant ideas and shared them through video, text, and social media. The Think Again podcast remixes this formula, surprising me and my guests with conversation starters that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today I'm joined by historian and journalist Jelani Cobb. He's the author of Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress, and other books, and one of our most powerful writers on the complexities of race in America. Jelani is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he's given readers nuanced insight into gun culture, police brutality, the Black Lives Matter movement, and much more. Welcome to Think Again, Jelani. Thank you. So I, I wanted to start with something that you wrote a very long time ago, like back in 2007, this is from the foreword to a book of essays called The Devil and Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. I wondered if uh, you would mind just reading this paragraph and then uh, and then we can take it from there. Oh my God, this is... <laughs> the ghost of so, writing past, right? Well, so what's funny about this is that this says 2007, but it actually is much older than that. Oh yeah? Um, because I wanted to have a collection of my essays. It was like a weird thing when I had it as a young person. I always wanted to have a collection of essays published. And so maybe even 10 years before this book came out, I wrote this hypothetical introduction. <laughs> and so this says 2007, but it was actually written in 1997. Right. Uh, so it goes further than back than that. Amazing. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Our times are filled with plastic prophets and genius visionaries, heroes and clay-footed idols. My task is to tell the difference between the vinyl and the leather. This much I know, my old man was an electrician. 61 years of pulling cable and wiring panels made his hands like leather. I once bought a pair of vinyl gloves, and six weeks later the elements had worn them into a tattered parody. Leather ages, grows weathered and wizened. Vinyl, on the other hand, cracks at the first chance it gets. Leather is toughened hide. Vinyl is the synthetic store-bought alternative. Vinyl always smells like the absence of sweat. Yeah. I mean, that line, vinyl always smells like the absence of sweat, is one that will definitely stick with me. I wanted to ask, I mean, all these years later, so it's even later than I thought, mm -hmm. you know, how's that project going? Are you still mm -hmm. up to the same thing? Is that still what you're thing. doing? Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. If you're trying to discern truth and fact, from mythology and misinformation and people who are looking to cultivate a particular wrong perspective in their own self-interest. Right. right. But I feel like that's what the enterprise of journalism is about and another level is what the enterprise of history is about. And that gets even more complicated obviously in the age of the internet and mm -hmm. you know as people look to their Facebook feeds for their news and mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and going back to the thing about vinyl always smells like the absence of sweat. Right. Like the way that you know the validity of something is that you look at what people are work, like what is the product of work and what is the product of someone attempting to look like they've worked, you wow. know? That's interesting. Um, knowing the difference between being a thing and looking like a thing, you know? Right, right, right. And right. so I think that that's something that, in a democracy even, like those are the things that you're constantly trying to do when people come to you and say, you should give us authority or give me power or give me your confidence or your vote on the basis of these reasons, right. we're always trying to discern that. 
I feel like it is becoming extremely, extremely difficult. And I speak as someone who was not trained in journalism, classical mm -hmm. journalism per se, but like just even looking at the players in this presidential mm -hmm. election mm -hmm. and the conversations that I've ended up having with friends, you know, like extremely progressive friends who hate Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. think that she is the incarnation of Mm -hmm. evil itself and have pre presented me examples of her foreign policy mm -hmm. misadventures to back this up you know and I look at all this stuff and I kind of I'm like okay yeah that I see that and on the other hand I also see this kind of like realpolitik mm -hmm. level of mm -hmm. things where I don't really know how it's possible mm -hmm. to manage mm -hmm. a country mm -hmm. and remain completely separate from right. that right. that kind of you know Dirtiness. Yeah, it's also it's like, it's, there's always the question of you know what are the actions and also what are the possible actions, right. like what this person did and what were the range of things that they could conceivably do in this circumstance, right. and I think that when you simply point to what someone did outside of context, it becomes easy to make those arguments. But I, I mean, bear that in mind that I think there are plenty of instances where you kind of look at Hillary Clinton and raise an eyebrow, but sure. I think that her problems fall within the normal range of what we expect with politicians. Right. I don't believe that her opponent's problems fall within that range. I think it's <laughs> yeah. far on the other side of the bell curve, like off the page, not even like right, on, right, right. on that chart. And right? yet and yet the partisan mind, whatever part it may be mm -hmm. taking, is so often impervious to mm -hmm. facts, no matter how you may present them. I mean that must be a frustrating task for a journalist to say to say okay look you know like New York Times puts out this article look you know these people are saying that Donald Trump has groped them mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. and there are other people being quoted the next day saying whatever yeah you know, I or, think it's, like it's disturbing. the timing is politically motivated or you know right. whatever like I think it's disturbing <laughs> because and it's not simply about this election I think we've had this point for a long time mm -hmm. where people have been able to have a la carte facts Right, you know, like you get the information that most conforms to your worldview and doesn't challenge you about anything, and you know even with cable, which kind of re returned to the age of the early twentieth century partisan newspaper, where you right. know they were just straight out like, yeah, this is you know we're connected with this party and this is our newspaper. Yeah, and so we see that same sort of dynamic happening in cable, and then you know it's been interesting hearing like cognitively what you know, psychologists are saying happens in our heads when we're confronted with information that runs counter to the way we see the world. And one of the things we do is that we don't change our view of the world. Instead, we disregard the source that that information has come from. And so one of the best examples of this, one of my favorite examples I kind of go over with students is this Twitter fight between the rapper B.O.B. and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Over whether or not the Earth was round or flat, and then Neil got his cousin, like right. his, his nephew, nephew who's to, a rapper, to rap right, back to respond. At, yeah. right. So the thing that's so fascinating about this is that you know we have this not at all controversial idea that the Earth is round, right? And we do have this one thing: more people who believe that the Earth is round than can reasonably explain, you know, in scientific terms, how we know the Earth is round, right? Um, I mean, oh, we could just say I've flown around the world like, right, around right, different right. places, and I never fell off. You know? but, <laughs> right. but the actual kind of physics behind it, smaller number of people can explain that. And then you had this person who was immune to the authority, 
So someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson explains, well, this is actually how we know the Earth is round. And the reaction was to say, the fact that this physicist is trying to kind of debunk what I think is proof that I must be right. Right. And so that kind of boomerang effect happens. And on there, we watch it on the internet, and it's a source of comedy. But when it happens in our civic institutions and in our politics right. and in a kind of democratic life, then it becomes terrifying. Yeah, totally. And here I want to segue into, you, you know, you are, you write a lot about what's going on with black Americans in this mm -hmm. country and you write about race issues, you know, which I and other white people I know think are everybody's issues, mm -hmm. but it's an interesting position. Like you're at the New Yorker, which mm -hmm. like historically has probably had a mostly white readership, mm -hmm. I would imagine, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know, but I'm guessing. And then you got Tanahasi over mm -hmm. at the Atlantic, Atlantic, and you guys are, you know, read by a lot of like educated white people mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. the progressive or the mm -hmm. other end of the spectrum. Whether or not you're tailoring your messaging to them, like that's that's an audience of your stuff. And I guess I guess I wonder how you conceptualize it in terms of whether and how you're able to get through to people, whether real change is possible through mm -hmm. those kinds of conversations. You mm -hmm. know? I think so. Like when I write, I try to think about the hypothetical person being somebody I might be having dinner with who we're having this conversation about right. what's happening in Ferguson or what's just happened in Charleston or those things and saying this is a reasonable person and I want to tell you what I know about this particular situation. And I think that, I mean, I do two things that involve engagement with the public, which is that I write and I teach. Right. And you can't do those things if you don't believe that there's some payoff, you know, that there's some right. capacity for people to engage and actually rationally think about information that's presented to them, rationally and critically, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Juno Diaz, the writer, mm -hmm. was on this show a long while ago, about a year ago, and he said, yeah, yeah, like, because I'm coming from, like, a, I guess, liberal humanist mm -hmm. tradition mm -hmm. that says that, like, we should have open dialogue across mm -hmm. difficult issues, and that will move us all forward kind mm -hmm. of thing. That'll be difficult to talk about, but it'll help, you know. Juno Diaz, obviously, on some level believes the same thing, but said that at the same time, we do have this tendency in some ways to like, we, we name the thing, we talk about it, we have an article, like there is racism, whatever, and then in a way we've absolved ourselves mm -hmm. of it. It somehow, mm -hmm. in some way, like saves us the heavy lifting. It I does, yeah. because, so here's the thing that we run into, and I don't know all the details about how you respond to it, you know, dialogue, is useful in kind of democratic context, especially for people who are open to the perspectives of other people. Right. But some of the problems we have, there's like that old saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Right. But some of the problems we have are precisely because people have learned from history. That they've looked at the negative outcome for somebody and said, yeah, I want to produce that again. Like, <laughs> yeah, if right. I can, if it's to my benefit to produce this outcome that is negative for lots of other people, then I'm going to look at the example of history and keep doing this. And so when right, you right, say yeah. that, we're kind and of... And I, I would add to that, mm -hmm. like, this reminded me of Foucault, which I read mm -hmm. intensely years ago, like this idea that 
power kind of finds insidious new forms and goes underground, you know, so it like, it learns from history that like, if I come out and say certain words to somebody's face, I'm gonna get slapped, but if I come come at it roundabout and, you right. know, oppress in a different Right, means, in a different like, way, and it's like, like this work, kind you know? of, um, <laughs> this kind of point and counterpoint, like when you have, um, you know, a vaccine that produces a new vaccine-resistant pathogen, and we then have to find a new vaccine, and then right. we're kind of going back and forth about this, which is, you know, for me, it's, it's I always keep in mind Frederick Douglass's statement at the end of the Civil War, right. where an abolitionist society was disbanding because they had conceivably achieved their goals, you know, with the 13th Amendment. And, you know, Douglass says that they should not disband. He was like, you think slavery is over? He uses this great phrase that, let's wait to see what new form this old snake takes. Mm. And I think that those are kind of the kinds of things we have to bear in mind about the way that these things happen. And so even when we're looking at this, we're saying, for us to change hearts and minds, or to expose people to information that changes hearts and minds, that's one level of it. But there are also people who have vested interests and you can tell them, and they may know that it's wrong, but they're going to persist and so on. So right. some of this is simply about self-interest. And I don't know how you finesse that, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, flashing forward to now, like we are seeing, you know, we see these flare-ups. The, the media is talking in a different way about, like, police brutality mm -hmm. and these kinds of things. But at the same time, like, I know for a fact, even myself whatever, mm -hmm. you know, progressive liberal values I may hold, the day-to-day -day reality of racism mm -hmm. is very different from that of my black friends. Mm -hmm. Like, I mm -hmm. can't carry that in my head from day-to-day -day the way that they have to. I, I know that these killings have happened. I, they are horrific when I think about them, but I also somehow have the cognitive luxury sometimes of forgetting that mm -hmm. that's the case, which I don't want to allow myself, but it's... You know what I'm saying? Just yeah, but from I think where we, I'm standing. All, like, yeah, I think we're all doing that in different contexts. I was, actually I was talking with a female colleague about this. One thing that I take for granted, there's a kind of vulnerability that comes with being a large black man, you know, walking around American society with police and the fact that I may, people may conceive of me as imposing or intimidating and those kinds of things. Yeah, and reader, uh, listeners mm -hmm. can't see Jelani, but he's a lot bigger than he looks <laughs> in that cartoon in The New Yorker. Right. <laughs> as people typically um, you know, think I'm a former linebacker or something. But, so there's that part of it. But paradoxically, I don't walk around the world with the concern that she has as a small woman that anyone may just grab her and do anything that right. they, they choose. That's not something I worry about. Even if I'm cognitively aware that these things happen to women. Thing that I think the best middle ground that you find is that me, as somebody who doesn't experience that, I'm still able to recognize it when I see it. Like, wait, we need to get help, or we need to intervene, or there's something that's happening here that I can be a part of addressing this. Yeah. And so I think that we're, we're all in that kind of... Yeah, you do what you can. You right. step in where you can. You can protest right. on their behalf. You can... Right. You listen when they talk, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you can't... Yeah, you are standing wherever you're standing in right. terms of your own context. Right, exactly. 
All right, shall we get to the second part of the show where we sure. watch the surprise videos and okay. see what they're about? I'm nervous here. I have uh, no idea what this is. Don't be nervous. Let, let me. They, they are. They could be on any subject, but okay, like great. we can go wherever we want with them, so we don't have to. We don't. It's not like a quiz where we're trying to mm -hmm. like necessarily do them complete justice. This is like nature nature videos. I love nature videos. That would be. I wish they were, but these are just video interviews with human heads talking to uh, us okay. about ideas. Mm -hmm. So. This would be the head of Jim Gaffigan, comedian, mm -hmm. and he will be talking to us about, aha, Donald Trump supporters. I grew up in a small town in Indiana, and I, and I feel as though living in New York or in LA or even Chicago, there is this dismissiveness to people with differing opinions where rather than explaining our point of view, we'd rather be right. John Kerry was running for president versus Bush. There was this, I feel like there was this collective thing like, well, anyone who votes for Bush is an idiot. That's not how you convince people. Rather than having a discussion, there's just kind of like, well, they're morons. And, and the thing that worries me about people that are supportive or Trump, of Trump or angry about Trump, there's this absence of dialogue. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think you can listen to someone and still think they're an idiot. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't think, that said, I think that we, one of the interesting things here is that there's an opposite phenomenon that's happened here. For all the egregious racism, vulgar sexism, anti-Islamic bigotry, conspiracy theorizing, birtherism, right. this entire litany of things that we could talk about. There's been this conversation about economic anxiety among Trump supporters. Like People have humanized them in a way that they would not humanize other people who had those attitudes. We saw the same thing with the opioid pandemic where okay. people were saying, oh, okay, we have to look at this as a public health crisis. We did not talk about crack that way. Right, and so right, right, right. people would not have said 20 years ago, let's go up to Louis Farrakhan and have a dialogue with the people who really seem to, right. to hold us in contempt. And Although arguably the same like quote unquote liberal media that are empathetic mm -hmm. or trying to be empathetic toward Trump supporters in this way, now, <laughs> after months and months of mm -hmm. being like they're all idiots, have also tried, like I believe it was in your own The New Yorker that mm -hmm. yeah, George Saunders, right, mm -hmm. the novelist wrote, like went and traveled and talked to Trump supporters. But they're also, you know, that wing of the media is also trying to be empathetic toward Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and like trying to understand those. Yeah, people. I don't think those things are morally equivalent though, right? Because Black Lives Matter is a group of people who are actually trying to say we don't, we want everyone's lives to be valued equally. I don't think that is what the Trump movement right. has, has been about. Right. But I mean, I agree that there's a certain value of dialogue and listening to people as a scholar and as a journalist. Right. Those things are indispensable. But I don't think that simply listening to these people and understanding how they view the world somehow or another invalidates the idea that much of this might be morally reprehensible 
on the other side of it. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, there are certain points on which it feels like, I mean, this is how sort of wars begin, because there are certain mm -hmm. points where, like, you have to say, okay, that's a line too far. Now mm -hmm. there is a line in the sand, the mm -hmm. things you are saying are not okay mm -hmm. in my world, you know? So I, that I totally understand. Um, I have been disturbed, like many other people, by the number of people that seem to support Donald Trump, mm -hmm. and I find it hard to believe that every single one of them is an evil, mm -hmm. crazy racist, which mm -hmm. maybe a lot of them are. But it doesn't have to be that, I don't yeah. think. I don't think. Some of these people are evil, crazy racist. I think other people are people who are willing to countenance someone who is an evil, crazy racist. Right, and a and, so and, a, kind of, and sort of a sexual right. abuser. Like you of women. are, yeah. you are someone who thinks that it is okay, actively thinks that it is okay to quote unquote grab them by the pussy. Yeah. Or you are someone who is willing to countenance that idea. So it's kind of active or passive, That's but right. it still becomes problematic. Like when we go back to all these examples of kind of egregious national acts that have been committed when people are saying, what was the public thinking at this particular point in time? Well, you know, some people, maybe an active ingredient, small number of people who were really on board with killing off this particular ethnic minority or whatever it was. Another group of people who just said, eh, you know, I can tolerate this. And there's so many pe reasons that people tolerate things. Like my father, he's a Republican, but mm -hmm. Fiscally conservative, mm -hmm. socially liberal, mm -hmm. does not, cannot countenance Trump. Mm -hmm. Knows people who do, and their reasoning is about the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. That's that's their argument. They're like, I can overlook. I don't like the guy, but he's mm -hmm. doing these things. So they're doing. It's like a utilitarian. Mm -hmm. I find that people are very often more willing to sacrifice the rights of other people than they are to sacrifice their own. Mm -hmm. And that those lines become, I think we have to be kind of vigilant about these. Maybe you don't agree with everything that this particular person is saying uh, about another group of people, but there's this other kind of trade-off uh, that you're willing to make. Right. But I don't think that's that, actually. When I look at Trump, because he is someone who is terrible on so many levels, Right. That people should have national security concerns you know, in terms of what he said about NATO and his fixation with nuclear weapons. Um, right. That people should have concerns about his trustworthiness because he has lied prolifically in right. ways that can be documented, objective documented lies. People who would be concerned about his stewardship of the economy if they believe that it's because he's a great businessman. Uh, well, people not, at yeah. Trump University right. don't believe that. The people at Trump Jets didn't believe that. <laughs> right. The people at these casinos in Atlantic City don't believe that. And so there's that dynamic. And so when people say simply the Supreme Court, I find it hard to believe that the only thing you care about in American society, you don't care if we have a nuclear war, if we countenance a revanchist uh, state in, in Russia, if we impose a religious test on immigration, if we have a kind of wink and a nod approach to predatory sexual behaviors toward women, as long as you get your Supreme Court nominee, I, I don't mean, think that's it. I mean, in any case, the Supreme Court is really mediating primarily what come down to issues of social conservatism mm -hmm. rather than like economic conservatism. So they mm -hmm. are mediating on the side of these attitudes about abortion, mm -hmm. these attitudes mm -hmm. about women. So, I mean, it's sort of, in a way, it's saying the same thing. I mean, mm -hmm. in just a more covert way, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's very cognitively dissonant 
to find oneself in a country where one feels like it's impossible to talk to I don't know how many millions of people. Right. Like, maybe it was always like this, you know? And maybe this is a little bit of the, like, it's like America is now taking the, uh, whichever pill it was from mm. the Matrix. Right, and... nobody remembers which pill it was. <laughs> right, right. You're probably gonna have like a billion commentators <laughs> saying, I don't understand, neither of you knew which pill it was. But, yeah, everybody forgets which pill whichever it was. Whichever pill it was, but right. the one that opens your eyes, I mm -hmm. feel like we're all kind of in this, or a lot of us are in this state of cognitive dissonance of like, what do we do about the fact, like I thought, going back to the like liberal humanist kind of mm -hmm. idealism, like I thought you could talk to people, right. you know? Yeah, I think that gets you to a certain place. Yeah. I think the, the kind of fallacy of liberalism is that we think that gets you everywhere and it doesn't. Right. I think that if you had gone back to the point at which women couldn't vote and interviewed men, you might have found men who were going to say, yeah, you know, you know, maybe they should, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Or men who'd say, well, you know, absolutely not. You know, I don't want my wife voting. But we do know the tangible effects of this, what this was, you know, for women. Or if we looked at people who were, maybe didn't take domestic violence or rape seriously, or right. the period at which we had segregation, or any of the things where we had child labor, you know, any of the things that we would look down upon now, yeah. There may have only been a small number of people who were really, really pushing for that. But what does that mean about other people who've just passively supported it? Right. And when you see yourself like with that vertiginous perspective of right. history, like maybe it makes it a little harder to just right. kind of elide these issues. Right. Yeah. All right, cool. So let's move on from Jim Gaffigan and Trump. So like, still we're not gonna have like the elk at the watering hole and that I, kind of I thing. wish, I hope. I hope we can go very yeah. far away from Trump and anything like it. Let's see, this This is Glenn Cohen, who's an ethicist. Ooh, Let okay. me try to say that again, ethicist, talking about ethics and personhood. The question about whether, how to think about artificial intelligence and personhood and rights to artificial intelligence I think is really interesting. It's been teed up, I think, in two particularly good films. AI, which I really like, but many people don't. It was a Stanley Kubrick film that Steven Spielberg took over late in the process. And then Ex Machina more recently, which I think most people think was quite a good film. Uh, and I actually use these when I teach courses on the subject. We ask the question, are the robots in these films, are they persons, yes or no? One possibility is you say a necessary condition for being a person is being a human being. Well, there's a problem with that, and this is put most forcefully by the philosopher Peter Singer, the bioethicist Peter Singer, who says to reject uh, a species, the possibility that a species has rights and ought to be uh, a patient for moral consideration, the kind of things that have uh, moral consideration, on the basis of the mere fact that they're not a member of your species, he says, is equivalent morally to rejecting uh, giving rights or moral consideration to someone on the basis of their race. So he says speciesism equals racism. And the argument is, imagine that you encountered someone who was just like you in every possible respect, but it turned out uh, they actually were not a member of the human species, they were a Martian, let's say, or they were a robot, right, and truly exactly like you. Why would you be justified in giving them less moral regard? On the other side of the continuum, one of the implications is that you might have members of the human species that aren't persons, 
And so anencephalic children, children with, born with uh, very little above the brainstem in terms of their brain structure, are often given as an example. They're clearly members of the human species, but their abilities to have the kinds of capacities most people think matter are relatively uh, few and far between. So you get into this uncomfortable position where you might be forced to recognize that some humans are non-persons and some non-humans are persons. So just on the first part, the surface level of it, the kind of speciesism is racism. And I don't think that <laughs> argument holds up because races don't actually exist, but species do. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so there's no kind of biological correspondence that we could say. Like, we know we generally divide species based upon the ability of them to reproduce and in the second generation still reproduce. Like, we're not just right, saying, right, right. you know, we can produce a mule with a what horse if, and a donkey. What if it was phrased like, speciesism is as bad as racism, mm -hmm. as opposed to speciesism equals racism? I still don't get that. I still don't get that because I think racism was created and abided as a mechanism of creating power relationships. Right. Um, but that's not even really my big point, okay. though. That's just kind of like the side point. Okay. Like, Unless you're going to say this was done in order for you to enslave AI or something like that. <laughs> right, 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 right. The point of like, even prior to you know, us thinking about race the way that we think about it now, it has this long history of people organizing themselves in order to create hierarchies. Right. Almost always when they say that someone else is in a different group, it's not because you want to run over and give that group a hug. It's um, usually for economic reasons, especially, right? Economic reasons, war reasons, military reasons. Yeah, yeah. Very often for reasons of kind of religious and ethnic differentiation right, as right, well. Right. And so there's a really good book by Betancourt called Racisms on this, which is really about European art history and, okay. and religion. And it kind of goes through all these things about how people have differentiated themselves over time and divided themselves up into tribes and oh, uh, interesting. other okay. things. But, so there's that, right? But the other part, I think, is like the self-awareness part. I mean, I'm not an ethicist, I'm not a philosopher, but it seems that when we talk about brain death, that we consider it the person no longer is self-aware. The entity is no longer self-aware and therefore maybe not a person or right. if you disconnect their biological processes, you are not committing a sort of moral horror that right. you would be if you starved me or you to death. Except that there are, even there, there are people that right. want the to people, problematize that and say, you know what, like we're, right. we're seeing that there are, maybe there is awareness in people right. who have been in a coma. Yeah, for, yeah, you know, I think that's <laughs> like, like, it's not like neat. I don't know, but I'm <laughs> yeah, saying yeah, this yeah, is just yeah, what the, yeah, yeah, yeah. what our kind of accepted idea is. Yeah. And so, if you have created something that is self-aware, right? because we don't simply reserve rights only to human beings, like, if we were to walk down the street and kick someone's dog, you'd probably violate some ordinance, you know, somewhere. Right. Or, you know, we eat lots of animals, but there are people who feel that you should ethically have considerations around how you consume those animals or how those animals are killed or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, and we do this on, we do this mostly by instinct. We mm -hmm. mostly say, it feels wrong to right. abuse a chimp, although we're willing to do it in the name mm -hmm. of science, you mm -hmm. know, many of us. Right, some of us. Um, will, some right. of us, anyway. I mean, most of us are the beneficiaries one way or the other of right. of primate research. But we feel that that, that feels weird and mm -hmm. doesn't feel quite right. Kicking a dog doesn't feel quite right. Mm -hmm. For most people, eating a fish 
feels okay. Mm. We think of a fish as kind of just like a moving flower, right. like, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really have, you know. Right. I mean, but those are judgment calls. Those mm -hmm. are, and I feel like we do them in a very sort of instinctive and maybe haphazard way, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's also a kind of <laughs> thing. Like, what if, you know, for our ethical considerations, we think that uh, maybe because we're cognitive, we have like this higher function that we're bound, you know, by these questions, but, you know, nothing else that exists really has that sort of concern about whether or not it should kill. Like, when it's time to kill, or just there's an impulse to kill, it kills. Oh, it's right, like, right, right. Right, and so, like... So that's like an arrogance on our part or something? That no, I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> arrogant. I think it's arrogant. I think it's, like, important. I think it's part of what makes us human. But the other factor of, of it is, like, no matter how ethically we try to approach this, right. We are all the product of species that killed things and ate them. Right. Like, humanity is In able to exist. Including our own, yeah, yeah, right. us, right. yeah, right, right. Right, yeah. and so I wonder how much we're bound by that, like how far we can get from that. That's right. Well, I want to, I mean, thinking of Ex Machina, which I also mm -hmm. really enjoyed, right, that posed a sort of counter-argument to the nice liberal humanist mm -hmm. approach, right? I mean, the guy was like completely wowed by mm -hmm. in love with and amazed by this artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which ultimately took the position that you were saying many right. creatures do and was like, you know, I'm gonna kill these humans and get right. out of here. To, to, to <laughs> <really> exist, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> there is this kind of Darwinian kind of idea that if you create something that is self-aware, like, would it respond as any species would respond to it? Right. Like, and is that ethically wrong? Like, right. And then there's also like the kind of interesting thing about Ex Machina that was the tech guy, Oscar Isaac plays. He does exactly what you would think like a stereotypical person would in that industry would do. Like, right. He creates these women, like one of whom can't talk. You know, she's just really super beautiful, but right. you know, she can't even communicate. And you know, the other one who he just kind of uses as bait and all these things, not to give away the whole movie. But, but this goes back to right. what you were saying about power, right? Mm -hmm. So in making AI, right, we are looking for servants. We're, mm -hmm. you know, that's what our computers do. Right. We want the robots and the artificial intelligence mm -hmm. to be slaves, like one way or the other. It's not surprising that, yeah, his slaves are like sexy, right. potential sex slaves. Right. That will happen, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And uh, that will probably be the first thing that happens. Indeed. You know humans, <laughs> indeed. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Sex leads all technology. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so they're supposed to be these obedient little servants. And in that sense, I mean, that is an overlap, I mm -hmm. suppose with the idea of slavery and with, you know, I mean, there is, that, that is an analog. It's not identical, but it's... Right, like, what happens when you've created an AI and it has a self-awareness and it understands itself, but you also want it to exist solely to... Um, serve you. To serve you, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are interesting ethical questions. Which we may wrestle with in this lifetime. I really don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know either. All right, shall we see what's next? Sure. All right. Hopefully the ocelots running across okay, the, right. the veldt. It's like someone with a British accent <laughs> narrating something that happens in a, in a nature preserve. Exactly, right. exactly. That guy from Monty Python who <laughs> travels around the world, Michael Palin, is it? Um, all right, so this is Frank Wilczek. Wilczek mm. um, I hope I'm saying that right. He is a physicist. He won the Nobel Prize. I mm. do not know this video, but 
It is called Why Change Without Change is one of the fundamental fundamental principles of the universe. Okay. Let's see where we go with this. All All right. Symmetry in common usage is a kind of vague term, like most terms in common usage. The idea of symmetry that turned out to be extremely fruitful in mathematics and physics and in the fundamental description of nature is something very precise that we can describe. When I say what it is, it'll sound kind of mystical. So symmetry in the sense that's turned out to be fruitful in mathematics and physics and fundamental investigations is change without change. Now you might be puzzled, what does that have to do with symmetry? Well, consider a circle. A circle is a very symmetric object. You can rotate it around its center by any angle, and although every point on the circle may move, the circle as a whole doesn't change. So symmetry is a very powerful constraint on our description of the world that nature seems to respect in many ways. Now, the kind of symmetry that leads to quantum chromodynamics, or general relativity, or quantum electrodynamics, is mathematically considerably more complex, but it's the same idea. So there are transformations of the equations that change the different terms in them, that change the way the equations look, but don't change their consequences. Okay, Jelani, before you came here, I was like, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if you know, I wonder if Jelani gets tired of talking about mm-hmm. some of the same stuff all the time. So <laughs> way out, <laughs> this right. couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, we are way out on a theoretical limb here into mm-hmm. some mystical territory, uh, but I don't even know where to begin either. So let me <laughs> let me think. Um, <sighs> so I have a question, I guess. I don't have like yeah, yeah, that's great. Questions, question's good, yeah. Like, I wonder if conservation of energy would be an example of the kind of symmetry he's talking about. I think probably, right? Yeah, that, that, that stands to reason. I mean, I say mysticism, and he sort of said it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's this kind of, the mathematicians are in love with things working out, mm-hmm. which is symmetry in a sense. Like, whenever you talk to a mathematician about, like, why are you so into it? They're like, because mm-hmm. it works out. You mm-hmm, put the stuff mm-hmm, in, and mm-hmm. then it's like, right? Right. But everything I'm interested in and everything I know about, which is in the human sphere, doesn't work mm-hmm. like that at all. There's no symmetry. There's no seeming underlying predictability. Like, things just kind of... But, I mean, I, think, I guess there kind of is an analogy, though, where people say that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it's prone to extended paraphrases. So you see, like, the same sorts of things, like change... We were talking about Shakespeare and its ability to talk to kind of modern life because the same sorts of things right. that he wrote about are part of us. Like no, that's right. And jealousy I, and ambition and you know all these things that pop up in his work again and again. And you go like, well, that makes me think that when I read great literature, or I watch a movie that speaks to me mm-hmm. or whatever. What's speaking to me is that like. Obviously, that's resonating with my own experience, but there's another level beneath the names that we give to things like jealousy, racism, mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. dynamics, mm-hmm. whatever, where you feel like there are sort of physical principles operating, where you're right. like, like, oh, we, yeah. Like, we have, like, you know, like, yeah, maybe even, I think it was the naturalist movement in literature. I'm not sure I could be wrong. Okay. Where people were talking about the kind of instinctive drives of humans. Right. And how the stories are always a product of these same 
inborn psychological drives that we have and they just present them. So the reason that we see the similarity is that we're dealing with the same operating system you right. know, again and again and again. It's right, like, right. And every time, but every time we try to like describe those fundamental principles, like mm -hmm. I, I think of all the sort of like the hilariously foolish kind of systematizations mm -hmm. of things that you got like around the turn of the like the fin de siècle you had like mm -hmm. people being like this is the system mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. magnetic interpersonal right. connection <laughs> right. that <laughs> defines all human relations you right. know or whatever or even freud's mm -hmm. explanation you know we sense that there are these things there but whenever we try to map them out we mm -hmm. we're ridiculous well, it's also funny <laughs> it's also funny it's also uh, i think that writers have you know for necessity reasons of necessity probably gotten past the romance of this, like we have categories, like there's a romantic comedy, which has like these particular principles, right. that the people are doing things that are really predictable. Right. Like this is guy, this is the point where he's going to run down the street and declare his love for her. Right. And hours and hours and hours, how many hours have we spent in our lives in a darkened theater or in front of a television screen? Mm -hmm. Consuming things that fall into these categories. Yeah, yeah. And go, at the end, they lived happily ever after, or at the end, they didn't work out and we feel heartbroken. I know. Or, I mean, there are only, there's a finite number of possibilities. And when I was like a snotty young intellectual, I used mm -hmm. to judge people for that. You know, I used to judge mm -hmm. like people who liked romance novels or right. whatever. But in some ways, it's one of the most beautiful things about us as humans mm -hmm. that we can and do want to like go into these stories, even knowing that like, it's a romantic comedy. We know how this goes. Like mm -hmm. that somehow there's still that capacity for innocence, at least in that moment of experience, you know? Like, yeah, I guess if we were going back to his example about the circle and its right, symmetries, right. And you can turn the circle and you haven't fundamentally changed, you know, anything. But if we were sitting there all our lives watching this circle turn. We'd be bored out of our minds, right? We'd be bored out of our minds, or we would start paying attention to little particularities of the circle, and the particularities would become fascinating to us. And I think that that's what we do that allows us, I think, to be endlessly fascinated with ourselves and each other and stories and narratives and all those other things. Right, that attention to variation, yeah, within sameness. Um, and I think um, on the kind of in the last non sequitur here, non sequitur-ish thing, but not really, since we're talking about this, you wrote recently about Luke Cage, which I've been watching oh, yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about mm -hmm. that. So like Luke Cage for you, like in terms of, I don't know, like what it means that that show, like mm -hmm. culturally, that that show is on TV now. I mean, first of all, like Netflix is a somewhat rarefied audience, I mm -hmm. guess. It's not like necessarily being watched in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. I don't know, but. I don't know, I don't know what Netflix is like. I don't really know either. Subscription numbers are, but I like that it's there, I like that it exists. I had a head start, I had the first seven episodes about two weeks before everybody else did. Because uh -huh. I knew I was gonna do this interview. And so they you know, sent me the advance and you know, I watched them and then I sat down with the um, the creator. The show creator. What's yeah. his name again? Hodari. Cheo Hodari Coker. Right, yeah. right. Right, right. Yeah, I loved mm -hmm. I loved that like his internal tagline for it is what the world needs now is a bulletproof black man. Right. Like, exactly. <laughs> so I think what's interesting, I think it was with um talking to him, uh we had a point where we I was seeing the black exploitation overtones to it, which is, you know, black exploitation is a genre of African American yeah. film from the nineteen seventies that 
was really like a kind of black social realism, you know, because the hero is uh, almost always a working class figure who's up against forces that are much larger than him, kind of very male-oriented with the exception of like some notable cases like, you know, Coffee or Foxy Brown. And right. Like with social realist writers in the 1930s, they were generally talking about social class and capitalism and writing about people who were on the other end of it, who had these virtues but were caught up in the system that was grinding them right. know, to, to dust. Or if you kind of looked at the Steinbeck Grapes of Wrath, right. you know, it was that kind of example. But black exploitation in the 70s did that, but they did it with race. And, you know, these were people who were trying to survive through but those like, kind of systems. But with outsized and unrealistic kind of mm -hmm. character elements, right? right. I mean, they'd be well, you know, larger than life. Yeah, larger yeah, than crazy. life, yeah, yeah. always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like kind of, <laughs> you know, those were very flamboyant characters for the most part. And, right, you know, defiant characters, and, and and there's a weird thing, right? So there, and maybe to a certain extent with Luke Cage, but you can correct me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. Where, like, on the one hand, it's it's social realism and it's addressing these issues. On the other hand, there's a certain element of caricature where it's mm -hmm. like exaggerating things in a way that takes them out of realism and. Someone could come at it critically and say mm -hmm. that that undermines the message. In I don't some think way. I don't think there's a, that kind of exaggeration. I think it was a reflection of the time, right. which was so over the top. Okay, like, you know, now if we saw someone, you know, driving a car that was so long that they, when they made it make a turn, they had to swing their arm around five times right, and then right, swing right. it all the way back and you know right. to get onto the street, we think that was ridiculous. Except in an era where people really were driving cars like that, right, right, right. The fashion was kind of hyperbolic and everything, like everything I right, think, right. was. But um, it is one of the things that I was talking with Cheo about, that you know, he really had to, he had to kind of, there was a heavy lift in terms of creating that storyline because, you know, Luke Cage originally, like, oh my God, it, it, the character was stereotypical. The villains were really, really stereotypical. When was that um, comic? Was it a comic book? It, it for, debuted like, in 1972. Oh, the comic, right. yeah, oh, okay. On Marvel. And so the character that he turned, like he's fighting against something that's actually intelligible to the audience as opposed to in the 70s. So the character that, that Alfred Woodard plays, Mariah, you know, which was called Black Mariah back then, was a horrific kind of mammy stereotype who okay. was like a 400 pound black woman who would hit um, Luke Cage with her purse, you know, and <laughs> okay. spoken like this completely unintelligible English and all this. Was so, it written by white people, the comics? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And so he looked at that and I think the storyline that we see now was a power hungry, corrupt politician. Right. Which is an interesting kind of thing you have to update. But um, anyway, I found it interesting and I think that with my general kind of sense of comic books, I was a like fan of comic books early on yeah. uh, because, you know, for the same reason lots of people were like opened your eyes to these completely like fantastic worlds and these storylines where there was like always so much at stake and, you know, great vocabulary, which was one of the reasons that my mother Initially, she would not let us read comic books. We had to read for a certain amount of time. But I found so many people who 
are writers now who have that common theme of comic book interest early on. Yeah, and it like and and so many great writers of fiction mm -hmm. who, you know, but but who also had to grow up with that weird mm -hmm. snobbish literary mm -hmm. dichotomy between right. like it's this is untouchable mm -hmm. literature, mm -hmm. but I love it, you know. Yeah, and now thing. kind of graphic novels are really I'm Thank reading God, um, yeah. Warren Ellis's Trees, which is an amazing graphic novel about it kind of goes back to the same thing we were talking about. A life form comes to the earth from outer space and they just resemble trees. And at some point you recognize that they are living and intelligent in a way that we don't understand to be living and intelligent. But at the same time they recognize, you recognize that we are living and intelligent in a way that they don't gotcha. understand to be living and intelligent. And the storyline goes from there. And so just the kind of fantastic, philosophical, open-ended questions that it raises, I would encourage any young person to kind of grapple with those things. Yeah, me too. I grew mm -hmm. up on, on uh, Sandman and a couple other yeah, yeah, yeah. Watchmen uh -huh. and a couple what did, other Yeah, what did you, okay, what, what, what were your... My comics, yeah, uh -huh. so we got, Sandman is unbelievable mm -hmm. in terms of like, talking about, I mean, grabbing from every mythology, grabbing mm -hmm. from Shakespeare, mm -hmm. stories bleeding into each other, mm -hmm. but taking away any kind of preciousness about mm -hmm. the fairy tales mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. allowing the dark edges to show. Yeah, Watchmen, Alan Moore, yeah, Swamp Watchmen. Thing, you know. Yeah, but I was not in the Swamp Thing, but I loved Watchmen, except for the ending. Yeah, the ending was a bit, was <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. It was kind of on, on the nose. Oh, but. Yeah, but, but well, and, and like, and I was completely fascinated by Rorschach and I mm -hmm. had to have like a moral yeah, dilemma right. where I realized like this dude is a fascist, right. like, you know. Dude, like, you know, that was an interesting eye-opening experience. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, even, I thought what I remember that was most interesting was Dr. Manhattan grappling with the value of human life. Right. Um, Again, and, back to this right. interspecies. Right. You know. and, and his kind of rationale for it is that it's so incredibly unlikely to exist. And so there's some value to be found in that. Right. I, of course, I think there are a lot of people who, like, would say the opposite of it, that would kind of operating backward that because it exists within by thereby rationalizing that it was important but it could just as well have been something else would have existed right well yeah i mean that's a like we could that one could spend all day arguing about whether scarcity makes something valuable, valuable right? right yeah mm -hmm. Jelani Cobb, we, we covered a lot of territory. Thank you so much for being on this this cra like my head still crazy episode of Think Again. Change, change without change thing. Like I'm gonna be on the subway. I know. Yeah. This. Feel free to like you know if I wake up at 3 a.m. Yeah, uh, with an idea, I'll text like, you, yeah. man. Things have right. changed, but they haven't really changed. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks. And that about wraps another episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. We don't do pledge drives. I will not make the show disappear for three days, twice a year, and harangue you guys to donate money. The ads are helping in that regard. But if you like the show, if you love the show, it would mean a lot to me if you could go and rate or review us on iTunes or wherever else you listen. And now, here's a thought for November. Instead of daylight savings time, maybe we should just expand each hour by a fraction of a second every day heading towards winter so that the whole day just gradually expands and then contracts as we move toward midsummer. I mean, 
We pretty much only get our time off of our smartphones at this point. We wouldn't have to adjust our watches for the most part. I don't know if there's an international time commission in Greenwich, but if so, you guys can have this idea for free. And next week, please join us for a really great episode with author T.C. Boyle. See you then.